Mr. Mackling, good morning to you. Are you going to be watching the final of the North American Ice Hockey League Championships? No. Not at all? Nope. Really? Really. Even as a as a as a fan of, of the fan ice of, hockey. I'm a fan of neither team. It, it, it holds no real value to me. No, you know what? Spring is here. It's absolutely gorgeous outside. I mean, I guess maybe if we get a little bit of rain as forecasted, I might peek in on it. I think I'm more interested in the NBA final now. How many years in a row is that now that it's Cleveland and Golden State? I think it's three. It might, but, but well, it, that's not for sure because we've got Cle- uh, Golden State and uh, Houston in Game Seven tonight. Uh, oh, is that Game Seven? I thought that uh... yeah, uh, Cle- uh, Golden State forced a Game Seven over the weekend. So Game Seven is actually tonight in Houston between the Rockets and the oh, Warriors. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, uh, I'd have to look back. Yeah, I, I think this will be three, if if not four. Okay. In a row, uh, what LeBron James did in Boston last night was absolutely unbelievable. Their second best player, uh, third for sure. Kevin Love was not in the lineup last night. Lots of people calling LeBron the greatest of all time right now. As a huge Michael Jordan fan, and I know this. Cuts deep for you because you were not really a Michael Jordan fan. He <laughs> well, was always I'll, beating your team. I'll weigh in on that in a second. <laughs> uh, I have a hard time taking the the goat horns, the greatest of all time horns from Jordan and giving them to LeBron. But my word, what he's doing uh, with essentially very limited talent around him is, is is for the ages. Well, LeBron, he played all 48 minutes yesterday. Uh, and Kobe Bryant actually weighed in as well because he kind of gets left out of the the dis- or he's part of the discussion I think for greatest of all time. But uh, there it's it's Michael or LeBron. And but Kobe said he weighed in on the debate and said why can't we just enjoy everyone's individual accomplishments? I think he used the hashtag on Twitter: enjoy my five, enjoy MJ six. Uh, Kobe winning five titles, I guess, and uh, LeBron or and uh, Michael Jordan winning six titles. I'm trying to remember how many titles because this will be eight years in a row now. LeBron's been to the finals. It's unbelievable. But uh, how many championships has he won? Uh, I think he's at LeBron. Five. He has won. Oh my Google foo! I'm 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 failing on the Google foo. Are you okay? Anyway, yeah. uh, oh three NBA championships. Three, so he's going for four. Yeah. Okay. I well yeah. And as far as Michael is concerned, yes, I was a fan of the NBA, big sports fan, in when I was a teenager in the nine in the 1990s, and every time Jordan went to the finals, he won and always defeated. I never, for the most part, I wasn't actually cheering for the team playing against the Bulls specifically. I would always cheer against. The Bulls. I think the first year I was genuinely cheering for them, I believe, was the Lakers. And I'm a Lakers fan, and the Bulls decimated them. So, yeah, that was the beginning of a very painful stretch of uh, basketball fandom for me. But, yeah, yeah I'm excited to that for that to see if King James can pull it out because he, he's probably going to leave Cleveland, right? Nobody seems to know right now. He He's eligible to leave for sure. So whether he will or not. And, by the way, if... The Warriors and the Cavaliers are to meet in the NBA Finals. It would be the fourth year in a row. Fourth year? Yes. Wow. Yes. That, that kind of harkens back to the, the Lakers-Celtics. 
Yes. Of the 1980s, right? When they oh, were basically there every some, other year. Some great, some great basketball over the years. And I, I've been a bigger basketball fan in my lifetime as I am right now. Just really compelling story for me. And I, I kind of like the Warriors too, some of the things that they've done. And Anyway, I know there's not a ton of basketball fans out there right now. So uh, we'll move on from this, but uh, I, I, I would encourage you to, to maybe check it out. We have stuff to give away later today. We wow. have a concert announcement. I've been asleep at the wheel. Yeah. I didn't realize we had this concert announcement today. Yeah. I'm excited about this one. We'll do it uh, uh, We'll do it close to 8 o'clock. Let's say we'll do it close to 8 o'clock. Um, and uh, Jerry sort of suggested a hint. So I think we can do a hint. You okay with that? Jerry, what did you, what did you say when I came in here and said we have a concert announcement? I said, rah, rah. There you go. If this were the search for gold, do you remember the search for gold? Winnipeg Sun? Yes. Of course I remember it. <laughs> I used to get up and like, I'd have a nap and go to the Winnipeg Sun on church and get the Same paper here. off the dock. Yes. <laughs> and quit, was it 1000 or $5,000? I think it was 5000 bucks. Uh, yeah, there was. there were some nights, some sleepless nights that first time they did that contest. Okay. For sure, out in a boat in the middle of the night. I don't think I'd ever do that in Winnipeg now. No. But 20 plus years ago it was okay some the, the reason i bring that up is there's going to be someone out there who's going to get the hint just based on those two words that of behind course. the glass jerry uttered because there were it used to blow me away how they the first clue which always revealed nothing <laughs> and then there was no second clue because someone went out and found it i know i tried i only did the sleepless night thing i, I guess i did it when they brought it back in the in the late 90s, and I'm, and a friend of mine and I, uh, Jamie Laker, taco maker, he got into the search for gold sort of fever, so we would go out at 3 in the morning or whatever time it was that the paper would come out, much to our parents' chagrin, of course, because what are you doing at 3 in the morning searching for gold? It was never close, by the way. It was no? never close. No. No. I thought I had it figured out. I thought that they had they had put it in the on the perimeter of the... Uh, uh, the airfield on um, on Ness, I okay. guess the 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 base there. Where yeah. they where the where they have the all the different airplanes, like the airplane museum or whatever that's outdoors, right? Yeah. They got that playground there. Yeah. No. No, not even close. I wasn't even on the right side of the city. Where did it end up being? Do you I can't, remember? I can't remember, but I just but we weren't the only ones who were there. There were other people searching that perimeter. There was one year, the first year, we were convinced it was in St. John's Park on Main Street. And then they put some animal clues, and we ended up in Woodhaven and stumbled upon this playground where they had animal kind of creaky, rocky things. We thought, this is it for sure. And it turned out to be in a Cinnaboyne Park under one of the rails around the English Garden. And But I was always under the impression that wherever they hit it was accessible 24 hours a day. And we always out ruled or ruled out the fact that it could be at a Cinnaboyne Park because they used to close the gates at night. Oh, interesting. So anyway, Winnipeg Sun, I still have a beef with you 25 years later. <laughs> well, maybe that was one of the things that led them to changing the rules. I don't maybe, know. Perhaps. I can't remember the, because I I didn't do the original run. Was, it, yeah. was that in the 80s they first started I, that? I think it was, I want to say it was like, uh, I wasn't long out of high school. Um, yeah, it was before 1990 for oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. I missed the search for gold. <laughs> Maybe we need to do our own search for gold. Despite the rain, 
And thunderstorms over the last week or so, including the rain that fell on the 32nd annual teddy bears picnic yesterday. Thankfully, it wasn't heavy rain. Some parts of the province are still bone dry. Yeah, two Manitoba farmers located in different parts of the province joined Clay Young yesterday to discuss how they're doing in the light of the recent precipitation. Clay started off speaking with Corey Peters, who has a farm near Steinbeck. We had uh, a full winter rain last weekend on the Friday of May long. And uh, since then, we haven't really had too much, just maybe a couple millimeters that barely even showed on the rain gauge. Are you pushing the panic button yet? No, I don't think we're pushing the panic button yet. Uh, having a large amount of rain isn't always as important as timely rain, so we'll keep hoping for timely rain. <laughs> yeah, what uh, what crops do you specialize in? Uh, we have corn, soybeans, uh, some sunflowers, wheat, and canola. Is your seeding pretty much done? Yeah, we wrapped up. Uh, we managed to get it in before we had that inch of rain, so we wrapped up on the Friday of May long weekend. You sound pretty optimistic still. Yeah, I think as a farmer, you kind of have to be. Uh, you always have to look on the sunny side. You'll have good years, bad years, and sometimes there's stuff you can't control, which is a lot of the scary part of farming, but that's just the way it goes. All right, so you're out uh, near Steinbach, and Justin Jenner is out near Minnedosa. So what's uh, the situation uh, in your neck of the woods? I know that uh, you're in the Westman area, and I know that uh, southwestern Manitoba, it seems uh, much drier than southeastern Manitoba. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I know uh, up by Dauphin, they've got some big rains in the last week or so, and, and it seems like this morning down south of me they've got quite a bit of rains, but uh, where I am seems to be in a little bit of a, a pocket of dryness. We haven't uh, had a rain of more than uh, three millimeters, and when it's really hot and windy like this, it doesn't doesn't get into the ground very far before it uh, evaporates again. How long have you been farming? Oh, well, I've been farming since 2002. 2002. So have you seen it since then? Have you seen it uh, this dry before? Or is this the driest? Well, this is probably the driest that, that I can remember uh, in the springtime anyway. Um, sometimes it'll dry out in the summer pretty good, but uh, usually usually we'd have enough rain to uh, get a good start on the crop anyway. I did notice Brandon was getting a shower. So were you getting part of that rain? Uh, it looked pretty good on the radar, but uh, it kind of skirted a little south of us, and we ended up uh, with not even three millimeters out of it. So it would have been nice to get a little more, but I guess I'll, I'll take what I can get right now. Right. Um, so you are still hopeful? I mean, things could, could change on a dime, right? Yeah, I mean, the crops are still uh, still just starting to germinate, so uh, a, a, a nice soaking rain would help, but uh, I'm certainly not, not panicking yet. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, will be on with us after the 8 o'clock news this morning with a preview of our summer forecast for Manitoba and the rest of Canada. Seems weird saying summer forecast because we've already been enjoying typical peak summer heat for the last week or well, so. Well, we went like from first gear to fourth, right? We yeah. skipped right over spring, yeah. which happens in these parts every once in a while. We'll go right from winter straight into summer and... I know it's been really dry, but it's been enjoyable for the most part. Still no, uh, dare I utter the M word? Oh, boy. No, I won't say it. I'm not even sure which M word you're talking about. Oh. Mosquitoes? Yeah. Wasps, though.
Yeah. Already wasps in the backyard. Yeah, I'm seeing a few of them. I, I, I bet you it has to do with the lack of rain and maybe the maybe the lack of flowers was causing them to come out and, and scavenge for food supplies that they're not used to looking for at this time of year. I don't know. Jerry Richardson, affectionately referred to as behind the glass Jerry in these parts. Jerry, uh, you were salivating for, what, about five days from the time I <laughs> I started discussing the fact that Half Moon had a non-beef or a vegetarian option burger. Well, it's not just that it was a vegetarian option burger or a vegan option burger. It was that it was the Beyond Burger. I've been waiting for nine, ten, maybe a full year, nine, ten, twelve months yeah. for this thing to come to Canada. And mm-hmm. then I find out it's just up the way at, uh, at the Half Moon. Straight up Henderson Highway, man. Yeah. yeah and... Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> Tastes like beef? It did. Wow. I was I was shocked. And not only did it taste like beef, it looked like beef. They put beet juice in it, so it makes it look kind of like it bleeds. <laughs> That's outstanding. Um, how much was it? Uh, I think it was seven fifty. That's reasonable. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, for a, for a premium burger, that's Absolutely. pretty uh, pretty uh, average stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I want to drive out there and try it. I know when you when we mentioned it the other day, your eyes lit up. How long have you been vegan now? Uh, just over two years. What made you go vegan? Uh, the whole you know, if I don't need to hurt an animal, why would I? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, if if there's if there's ways that I can get all the nutrition I need, without hurting an animal makes sense to me well wow. i want to try this beyond uh the this beyond meat burger because if it does in fact taste like a burger then i don't know why i would need to and it's got burgers. about twice it's got about twice the protein of a regular burger and uh no uh, cholesterol or anything like that in it yeah, it's difficult to argue with his logic yeah i don't agree with them but it's tough to argue <laughs> with his logic <laughs> so uh you used to live in ontario as well jerry you're kind of a patriated manitoba and june 7th the uh, people of ontario will go to the polls in a general election for the 42nd time it's been an absolutely fascinating few weeks here with regard to this uh, campaign. Fascinating is one word for it, yeah. <laughs> Holy man, the leaders of Ontario's three main political parties used the third and final debate of the 2018 provincial election campaign to launch pointed attacks about each other's integrity as well as their credibility and track records on a number of high-profile issues affecting voters. This was last night. Liberal leader Kathleen Wynne and NDP leader Andrea Horvath sparred over collective bargaining. I heard your your issue about the uh, the funding, but what here was the question was, and I believe in collective bargaining. I think the collective bargaining process is a really what important part of What happened with Bill 115 democracy. then, Kathleen? I, <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you let, you actually, Andrea. you don't respect the collective Andrea, bargaining I process. That's not do. the evidence of, okay. that, that's not how you've behaved though. Well, it really. absolutely You actually is. brought legislation into Ontario so. that totally tra- tra- uh, stomped on the collective Andrea, bargaining process. I and you ended up at the Supreme I Court of Canada I, Andrea, for that. I know. I know that you are beholden, <laughs> you're beholden to the unions on this. I oh, get that. Kathleen, wow. I get that. But that's here's really the issue. Sad. I believe in collective really bargaining. I believe in it. But at a certain point, when all of the You believe in it until you don't anymore. No, I believe <laughs> in it until said. there's an impasse that can't be resolved. And I, if you take away the one tool that government has it's to not a government act in the tool, public Kathleen. interest, how it is do you, not a government how do you avoid tool. eternal strikes That's how you continue or an empty to, public purse? Okay, let, That's let's the question. Let's just be clear, though. Wow. Let's just be clear. That's really sad. Yeah. <laughs> 
Civilized discourse. Civilized? Borderline civilized. (laughs) I don't know. You you wonder why people tune out of these conversations and these debates, right? Because it's almost impossible to follow the trains of thought of anybody involved, especially when people start speaking over one another. It's very difficult to to get an idea of where people stand when they're just slinging mud at one another. It's children in the sandbox. Meanwhile, PC leader Doug Ford attacked the NDP and the Liberals on their spending plans. Do you trust an NDP government that says they have a budget? And then, (laughs) mysteriously, they made a mistake of $7 billion on their own budget and their own plans. So their plans plans out the window. Mr. Ford, not true. Their plan is actually out the window. You made a $7 billion mistake. So the NDP can't do math. Obviously, so, so and Mr. the liberals Ford, are cooking the books. Mr. Ford, in There's fact, one it wasn't, person it wasn't that they can uh, trust that with their money, money that has a proven okay, stand by, stand by. proven Mr. record. Mr. Ford, take 10 seconds to finish your point, then we'll hear Andrew Horvath. And then I'd like, and then Ms. Wynn. There's there's one person who has a proven record of saving the taxpayers' money. We don't make mistakes in our budget. We don't make seven Do billion dollar mistakes. Do you have a plan? We don't. We don't make. We don't cook the books to twelve billion dollars. Okay, let's hear Andrew. We make sure response. we keep our promises. Let's- if I'm watching that, I'm throwing up my hands at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's just pointless. Zero respect shown to to either amongst any of the candidates toward one another. It's very frustrating. Global National Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken takes a closer look at where the parties stand less than two weeks before election day. Okay, we go. NDP leader Andrea Horvath and her son cast their ballot in an advance poll in her downtown Hamilton riding. So I hope you voted for me. <laughs> Horvath, in her third election as leader of the Ontario NDP, finds herself in the surprising position of being a frontrunner with momentum. I'm excited about the support I've had and about the excitement uh, that people are feeling uh, for June 7th. Hey, you're wearing my favorite hat. Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives had held a comfortable lead at the beginning of the campaign, but have seen their support erode. Never paid attention to polls. I've said that from day one. Uh, The only poll that counts is on election day. And the Ford team is still confident of a win at the end of the race. PC support is more efficient, that is, it's spread out more evenly across Ontario's 124 ridings, while the NDP support is more concentrated, and that makes it easier for Ford to win more seats in a first-past-the-post system, even though he might lose the popular vote. Meanwhile, well back of those two is the incumbent, Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne. We have come such a long way, but we only go that next step by everyone contributing. Wynne has campaigned gamely, but she is racing now to avoid seeing her party being wiped out. Indeed, a global news analysis of the race indicates that if the vote were held today, a likely outcome would be 68 seats for Ford's PCs, 51 for Horvath's NDP, just four for Wynne's Liberals, and possibly the first ever Green Party MPP at Queen's Park. The global news analysis also showed that there are about a dozen seats where the NDP is close behind the PCs. If a bunch of those seats flip, Horvath rather than Ford could be Premier. With all due respect to the folks at Global in Toronto and all these polls that get taken, if there's one thing we know for sure by now, the polls are never right. No. No. So. Not even close. It's like a sporting event. 
They play the game for a reason. We'll find out June the 7th who actually wins this election. One event that captivated thousands of people in the Twitterverse had to do with stacking waffles. Someone live tweeted the world record for tallest stack of waffles, and it was a dramatic affair. This from Mashable, Martha Tessman. During Memorial Day weekend, many people gathered in backyards to kick off cookout season across the country. But in Denver, some visited an unassuming backyard to witness an attempt to shatter the world record for the tallest stack of waffles, which was previously, I'm thinking, when I'm reading down, I'm thinking it's feet feet high, several feet high. No, 51 centimeters. And yeah, the waffles, I guess they're they're sort of in, in... how do you, what, what do you even call a, a, a pallet of waffles? When they're- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in four, right? Yeah. In four like that, like straight out of the waffle iron where you could actually cut them into four. So you actually have to use them. Very strict rules. Apparently, uh, they had a 50, a 40-page PDF from the Guinness folks of what was required and how they had to do this. Anyway, if you're on Twitter or not, uh, search it up. It was very entertaining. I was shocked at how small the stack was and even more shocked to realize that they had difficulty uh, achieving the the new world record. So it got us thinking about world records and if you've ever contemplated breaking a world record yourself. Tristan Field-Jones is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Braun and behind the glass, Jerry. Tristan, have you ever tried to break a world record? I did when I was a kid. Um, How old were you? uh, I would have been four or five, I think. Okay. And uh, for a little bit of extra context, I used to be really um, asthmatic. But I thought as a kid I could break the world record for the longest time to hold my breath. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, that so means you were asthmatic you were being, and stupid. That means exactly, you were being yes. quiet, so I'm sure your mom was all in favor of that. Well, I mean. It's her idea. Yeah. <laughs> she's the one who suggested it. No, actually, I was not quiet because what happens is I decided to try it one day. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, I can do this forever. And I'm thinking I'll be able to hold my breath for hours, right, which obviously is not the case. And then about 30 seconds afterwards, um, I, I I don't, and I start having a coughing fit, and then my mom ends up being concerned. She's like, is everything okay? Because I was so asthmatic. And I, of course, didn't tell her that I was trying to go for the world record of <laughs> longest time without taking a breath what for a five-year-old. What was the record? Do you know? Do you remember? I don't It's got to be like three or four. It might even be seven or eight minutes or yeah, minutes for sure, yeah, yeah. But it was I wasn't even close. I think it's ridiculously long. Everybody's googling right now just yes. to see oh. how long the world record is for uh, holding the mass breath. We have the master of Google Foo in the studio, Brett McGarry. So I'm sure yeah. we'll know very shortly. In Kill- 2012, yeah. German free diver Tom Cetus held his breath underwater for 22 minutes. Oh my god! 22 what? seconds, Holy. Uh, besting Dane Stieg Severinsen's previous Guinness record by 22 seconds. When they say don't try this at home, kids, don't, don't, don't try, try this. At home. Uh, or don't, yeah, exactly. Don't try this, period. Period. You know? dot. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where you try to go for those world records or for those achievements, and then you think, I'm pretty good at this. And then you look at the actual record. And realize, Kelly, did you ever think maybe you might like to try and break a world record? I hate to be the porcupine of the balloon party, but I that's <laughs> never even come close to entering my. Really? Not, like, not even, even in, intrigued to. No, no I not. have. I have been humored. 
by uh, some of the uh, attempts at, at world records and, and intrigued at others. Uh, I, I thought the you know the one where they had the the uh, longest hockey game to set the Guinness World Record. I thought that was pretty cool because it was, it was also done for uh, charity. And then of course here in Winnipeg, I remember the guys used to play golf. Uh, all day mm. and mm-hmm. to, to set the Guinness World uh, Records. That, that was during my first tour of duty uh, with CJOB, but I don't hear of that happening anymore. So maybe they've just finally decided that, uh, you know, playing golf around the clock is... Maybe you could uh, uh, try for a record uh, to see how many statistics you can fit into a <laughs> sportscast. Yes, I could probably <laughs> no try one, that. But no one knows. You yeah. have more stats in your head than I think anybody on the planet. I don't know. I've come into a, I've met a few geeks that have me beat oh. hands down. <laughs> Modest as well. Sports oh, geeks like that, that. Yeah, just clean my clock. Braun, you, you ever co- no. contemplate the idea of breaking a record? I would. Like sometimes I would think of the same thing about holding my breath and then I would look it up and like, oh, 22 minutes. Yeah, no. I'm not not going to No. <laughs> the favorite one from the, those old Guinness books every time you I used to see them. What they put them out once a year, right? Yes. And I remember when I was a kid, they'd come to the school library or whatever, and that'd be the book everyone goes for because there's all sorts of weird stuff in it. The guy that would eat an airplane bit by bit, mm-hmm. that oh, sort right. of thing, yeah. or eat a bicycle, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Yeah, right? I love that. I read about that all day. How do you eat an elephant? I I think one bite a, at a time. A perfect <laughs> shot at a Guinness World Record would be the couch potatoes. How many consecutive movies can you watch oh. without without doing anything else? We're without going to work, you can have food ordered in. Okay? <laughs> what about uh, bathroom breaks? Uh, no, I you think... can't put them on pause. You'll just have to. You'll have to uh, make, make some arrangements. Yeah. No, I think Whoa. with I think with those um, those dur- uh, what what would you call it? Those a binge uh, contest. Yeah, yeah, you get a certain amount of time Do every you? so often for a washroom break. Okay, anyway. well we'll check to get us uh, rules on that. But I think the coach one hundred twenty one hours, that. eighteen minutes. Yeah, one hundred twenty-one hours. You How long is it? No, that easy. no, it's like I, five days. I once tried to watch the Lord of the Rings extended trilogy in one shot, in one day, and I and I didn't make it. I fell asleep with about forty-five minutes to go in Return of the King. So I have tried sort of this, and yeah. I just I don't have it. I don't have the metal to make it through the day. I just but I can only take eat, so much. If you guys each shared a coat a couch cushion, though, you know, and then you could. Keep the other one awake. It'd be kind of like having the guy riding shotgun no, for an old. Huh? <laughs> that record's not worth it. <laughs> you, you were looking up one about uh, pogo ball bounces or something. Yeah, I used to have a pogo ball, and my own personal record, I think, was close to six hundred bounces consecutive down the as I was going down the sidewalk on. Horton Avenue in Transcona, but uh, I couldn't find the actual record. It's it's hidden on Guinness's website, and you need to register and log in yeah. to find it. But I did see the the pogo stick. I think the record was seventeen thousand. <laughs> so I'm guessing the the my my pogo ball record is not, not even close. Quite, not yeah. quite. Oh, well, Jerry, you, how about you? You seem like a record breaking kind of guy to me. Uh, yeah, I've never actually tried to break a record, but I do uh, have some friends who were a part of a 2008 record. Uh, uh, most people uh, dressed as Superman in a gathering. How many? Uh, that was that was back in the day. That was uh, in 2008. It was 122 people. Since then, it's been beat a few times. I think the record now is somewhere in Ireland at 800 and some odd people. Oh, my. Yeah. A lot of Kryptonians in Ireland. Absolutely. Didn't you hear in Winnipeg uh, several years back when Glenn Murray was mayor, we had the world's biggest hug? Wasn't that a record that we had here? 
Google, somebody Google. I don't remember that. I found the worst, this is the worst possible record a person could break. Charles Osborne of Anthon, Iowa started hiccuping in 1922 (laughs) while attempting to weigh a hog before slaughtering it. He was unable to find a cure and continued hiccuping until February 1990, a total of 68 years. 68 years. Oh, my God. That's horrible. I'm going to put my quarters on my elbow and start practicing that quarter snatch again. I'm going to get that record. I think it's like 52 or something. I can get up to about 15, 16. Hey, uh, one of the, I think it's one of the most beautiful heritage buildings in our community, but it's um, under a little duress and it's being ignored right now. In fact, we go back to 2016, July of 2016. Kim Lawson, whose voice you'd never hear on the air anymore, did a documentary on this building. It was being transformed into a proper home for all of the documents and photographs that make up Winnipeg's history when the rain came pouring through the roof in 2013. The Carnegie Library at 380 William Avenue became a flood zone Employees scrambled to save the history of our city. Walls, floors, and ceilings were damaged. So were 450 boxes of archival records. Now, more than three years later, the building is empty. The future of housing our past is in limbo. What will happen to the 111-year-old historic building is unclear. For now, our history is scattered across the city. Those concerned want answers. And we've been three years like this, and little progress seems to have been made on getting the archives back into its home. And two years removed from that report, we are still in limbo. And in fact, the former Carnegie Library is one of Canada's most endangered historic buildings. And we are joined now by Chris Weeb, who is Manager of Heritage Policy and Government Relations at the National Trust for Canada. Mr. Weeb, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you. Why is this building, the former Carnegie Library and City of Winnipeg Archives, now on the list of endangered buildings? Well, the National Trust for Canada puts out, uh, we've been around since 1973, and we're a membership-based organization that uh, pushes for the, uh, promotes the preservation and uh, saving of older buildings and landscapes around Canada. We put out a list every year and uh, to try to draw attention to places that have challenges and uh, where we can actually make a difference. And the Winnipeg Library is a really iconic building uh, in Winnipeg, and uh, I know that it's been uh, teetering on the edge of finding some kind of a solution in recent years. And, um, and uh, it, actually, well, there was a report that came out from the city not too long ago, uh, maybe in 2016 it came out, and uh, they were mentioning that uh, they were looking at other locations for the archives. And so we were concerned about that. Yeah, once you, you know, there's a saying uh, with regard to preservation of historical building is, is basically these things can, can go the way of the dodo bird just by not using them, right? Well, I guess that's the concern in this case. I mean, it's an iconic building, but it's one that hasn't, uh, it's often in these situations where there's not an immediate solution or where they sit around uh, unused for a number of years that, uh, that concerns rise because uh, people tend to uh, go to worst-case scenarios with these kinds of places. So we wanted to intervene early and really encourage the city of Winnipeg to think long and hard about this building and uh, to bring it back as, a, uh, as an archival space and not... Uh, not think of some other thing for it. 
Why should we care about this? And I'm not pushing any sort of personal agenda. I think it's a gorgeous building, but why should we care about this old building? Well, I think uh, with those kinds of buildings, I mean, it's, it's incredibly well built. Uh, it's really noble materials, beautiful limestone exterior and the interior. I remember uh, being a university student in Winnipeg in the 80s and going there and, uh, specifically to go look at it. And I remember that interior was incredible. I'm not sure what the condition would be now after the, uh, the rainstorm. I also think that uh, these buildings, and I think this is the way a lot of uh, uh, people around, uh, around uh, North America are going, is that Older buildings are, are incredibly valuable as uh, environmental resources. Uh, rather, um, this whole idea of re, uh, the, the oldest, uh, the best building is the one that's already built um, in terms of not expending new resources to build new places and uh, cutting down new forests and what have you, uh, that there's an environmental cost to rebuilding uh, our, 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 built, uh, our built environment. And uh, reusing is the best, uh, the best way forward from a climate change and an ecological perspective. So I think, I think it's a number of things. Chris Weeb is Manager of Heritage Policy and Government Relations at the National Trust for Canada. We're discussing the Carnegie Library on William Avenue. It has been, well, was up until 2013, the site of the Winnipeg Archives for years and years. And and the fate of that building is in limbo. Uh, you know, my grandfather uh, was a... Well, he was a master carpenter, and for so many years I would work beside him, and we would do renovations together, we would work with wood, and and quite often you'd hear him say, they just don't make things the way they used to. Is there some truth to that, Chris? Did, did they make things uh, differently and of a higher quality back, say, at the turn of the uh, 1800s to 1900s? I think they did, and I actually I think up until around you know the Second World War there was a real there was a real strength in terms of the building uh, practices. I think uh, you know the Carnegie Library and others. I mean that one's uh, uh, likely a steel frame building. Um, a lot of the ones in Winnipeg I know are uh, they're wood and timber frame inside, and those kind of buildings are incredibly well built, and they'll last for. Uh, you know they're built of old growth wood, which which is far more durable actually than some of the new wood that they're uh, they're extracting from forests. Just the growth rings are tighter. These things can last for a really long time. I think there was just that pride and uh, understanding of what what building meant that. Um, they, uh, that they knew at that point. I think in the 1950s, they went to all sorts of newfangled uh, ways of building buildings. And I think you look at something like the um, public safety building in Winnipeg. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting example of a building where they use the most cutting-edge technology, and now they're running into problems with how to, how to repair it. Uh, you have uh, a sort of a, a stone skin that's hung on the outside of it, and it's the anchors that are, that are collapsing. So I think, I think we, 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 uh, we go towards uh, this, this idea that newer is better, but it's not always the case. It's often the older buildings were better materials and better built. So this building uh, was undergoing a a bit of a transformation leading up to this storm in 2013 where rain came pouring through the roof and then uh, the archives had to be scattered across a couple of buildings in Winnipeg. And uh, now it is on the National Trust for Canada list of endangered buildings. So does that give the building any sort of protective status, or is this just kind of a public service that you're doing to bring it to our attention? 
Well, it doesn't it doesn't explicitly give it uh, protection in and of itself. Where it's a public uh, it's a public service uh, in terms of flagging these kinds of places around the country. We do. Um, I mean, it does it does give a shot in the arm uh, often to local uh, people who are pushing for uh, solutions around around places. Actually, there are some number of examples in recent years that we could point to. Um, the St. Stephen Post Office in St. Stephen, New Brunswick, similar situation, owned by the city. Um, some engineering firm had said that it was beyond repair. Uh, and uh, having it on the list actually focused a spotlight on it again. They went back, found different engineers, got a different kind of solution there, uh, and it's actually being refurbished as a, an important building in the city. So I think, you know, um, the national list, uh, can be can be really effective in terms of bringing it uh, bringing attention and bringing focus uh, in a city on uh, on places that matter and uh, deserve to be uh, brought up to speed. Chris Weeb is our guest. He is with the National Trust for Canada, manager of Heritage Policy and Government Relations. And Chris, don't have a whole lot of time here, but we just wanted to ask you: Can you tell us about some of the other buildings that have been added to your list for 2018? Actually, there's uh, happy to. There's actually a really interesting one in Edmonton, my home uh, town. Uh, it's the Minshaw Blacksmith Building, and it's interesting because it's a really um, understated industrial building. But it's in Old Strathcona, uh, in that, uh, that well-known historic area, kind of like the Exchange District, iconic for Edmonton. And uh, it's a smaller building, but uh, it's threatened by um, demolition for a, a larger building. But I think it's indicative of a uh, you know a, the need to recognize the the work that's smaller and uh, less uh, less uh, fancy or iconic buildings play in a city in terms of creating that texture and uh, I think I think Winnipeg has that in spades in terms of that texture and I've always loved that about the city um, the other ones on the list is uh, there's covered bridges in New Brunswick that's another one we've put a kind of a blanket endangered uh, thing on that because uh, a lot of those are threatened by well by recent flooding but by also by um, just uh, under under repair and maintenance issues and just people don't really know uh, how to uh, don't really know the wooden technologies the way they used to. And I think we're thinking that's leading to um, some of the uh, disrepair and demolition of some of those buildings. And I mean, when you think in New Brunswick, you think of uh, covered bridges. Chris, we we got to leave it there. I'm afraid the clock has us, but we thank you very much for joining us to tell us about the Carnegie Library and City of Winnipeg Archives and William Avenue being named to the endangered list for National Trust for Canada. And Chris is the manager of Heritage Policy and Government Relations with that organization. We've had a good start to the show, but it just got better. A member of one of my favorite families, uh, proud to call them uh, originally Winnipeggers, Fred Fox joins us now, and uh, his brother needs no introduction. Fred, you're starting to uh, take on celebrity status yourself. I, well, I don't know about that, but no. it's uh, it's awesome to be here, and uh, like you said, we've got lots of family roots here in Winnipeg and throughout Manitoba, so it's always nice to be here. Well, it's always, uh, I always get a little bit of, a little excited when I am reminded that uh, you and your family lived for a time in Transcona uh, because I grew up in Transcona, um, and I didn't and I didn't learn that until after I grew up. It was one of those things that I kind of learned uh, later on in life. Like, oh my God, yeah, he's from Transcona. So, yeah, I get excited to to speak to you. What brought you back to? Usually, we don't talk to you until the fall. No, you're right. And, uh, you know, I, 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 just like our mom did, and I probably wouldn't be, if, I mean, obviously I wouldn't be here if, if not for Terry, but in many ways, it's, if I wasn't for her, here for our mom, because of our mom, she uh, traveled right from 
the time that Terry passed away in 1981, mom traveled across the country a couple times a year. So that's what I'm doing now in, in the spring and the fall. And there's 9,000 schools in Canada and, and many of those are here in Manitoba. So we come in the spring and the odd time in the fall as well and, and share Terry's story. But number one, to say thank you to um, people in Winnipeg and Manitoba and uh, to say thank you for continuing Terry's uh, dream and legacy. He uh, had to for- he was forced to stop in Thunder Bay. So he so missed the opportunity of getting to, to Winnipeg. He was looking forward to that. So it's, it's a great opportunity this time of year to say uh, thank you. We're about a month out from the anniversary of Terry's passing, and I can remember as though it was yesterday, or yesterday uh, the news uh, of Terry uh, losing his battle with cancer. But I got to tell you, my kids are about to turn 12, and we do mm. a Terry Fox run at their school every year. It's an excuse to bring all the parents and the kids. We do it in an evening wow. uh, event. We have a barbecue and a hot dog, and we, we all get together. And it sort of kicks off the school year at their school. And I just wonder if you've noticed what I've perceived, and that is that Terry's legacy might be as strong now as it's ever been. Well, for sure it is. Like you say, your kids uh, obviously weren't born 38 years ago. Some of their parents and teachers weren't born 38 years ago. So this next generation. And But uh, I think, as you know, Terry inspires people of all ages, but I think he, he has a, a huge impact on young people. I say all the time that Terry never gets older. Um, you see that picture of Terry running, he's only 22 years old, there's still that close connection to, to young people, and, and it is, it's as strong as it ever was, not only here in uh, Manitoba and Canada, but around the world, So, uh, but it's Terry's uh, inspiring feat that he did by running a marathon every day for 143 days. Do you think Terry's effect, uh, do you think he affected fundraising as a whole? For example, we just had uh, something called the Ride for Dad, Motorcycle Ride yeah. for Dad, Manitoba, and, you, and we had nearly 1,500 guys on bikes, guys and gals on bikes. Um, and it's, you know, you see these massive fundraising events, but without Terry's influence, do you think those kind of things would be as successful as they are? I, I think you're I think you're right. Um, you know, Terry was... For sure, one of the first to try to you know, to run across Canada to raise money for something. Uh, for sure, as a as a uh, uh, an athlete who had a artificial leg, he was the first. And then when he passed, the, before he passed, the idea came to Terry. Somebody brought the idea to Terry about maybe organizing, doing something to continue his dream. It was a Terry Fox run, and, and you're right. Just after that, so many other events started, and uh, um, other events raising money for cancer research. And I think Terry could be. Uh, uh, re- held responsible for that as well, you know, inspiring people. It was a great way of uh, raising uh, raising money for good causes. So proud to know that uh, the August long weekend is Terry Fox Day here in Manitoba. I'd like to see it become Terry Fox Day right across, across the country, but I'm quite all right with us having the only Terry Fox Day, this being the province of his birth. But Fred... Terry, as an athlete, tell, tell us uh, about your relationship with your brother because you're, you're, what, just over a year older yeah. than Terry? So you were very close growing up. Yeah, we're 14 months apart in age. I'm older. And that was, I say to kids, that was Terry's passion is being an athlete. Um, that's uh, why he decided to run across Canada. He, When he was diagnosed at a young age of 18 years old, he was in hospital taking chemotherapy, saw young people, older people going through the same thing, and he wanted to make a difference. He wanted to do something. And as, as an athlete, um, um, that's what he decided to do was run. And he, you know, he's been a, 
uh, acknowledged so many times and, and paid tribute to so many times, but the ones that would have uh, really, um, Terry would have enjoyed most was Athlete of the Year, the Lou, Lou Mars Award. Those ones are the ones that he would have most liked. Um, but yeah, Terry was like uh, any other kid in Canada, um, but he was probably more determined than most and more uh, determined and had to work harder than anybody else. And that's kind of showed when he was running across Canada. The website is terryfox.org, and you can link up to the various social media platforms from there. The run is on Sunday, September 16th. When you go to schools and you visit various communities and you talk about Terry and you talk about the run, how do the kids today react? Well, they're so... uh they're they're inspired by Terry. They're they're amazed by Terry. They love his story. They um, uh, all kids will come up and hand me notes of about what they have written about Terry and how, you know how he's impacted impa- impacted them. But also, it's amazing. Um, I say often that when Terry was diagnosed in 1977, I was 19. He was 18. We we didn't as kids as older teenagers, we didn't know much about cancer. Kids come up to me and say, um, my grandmother had cancer, my my mom had breast cancer, um, and uh, because of what Terry did, they're alive today. And kids recognize that at a very, very young age. So Terry um, inspires kids. Kids say, well, I'm, you know, when I get older, I'm going to I'm going to do something like Terry did. So it, it's amazing to see the reaction that they have. What else do you do, Fred? How do you how do you keep busy? You live in Maple Ridge. We were talking and chit-chatting off the air about uh, what you do when you're at home. But uh, is, is this organization your full-time passion and job, or what keeps you busy otherwise? It is. It is. I work uh, full-time for the foundation now. I have in the last uh, for the last seven or eight years. And uh, you know, not only do I travel five or six weeks in the spring and then another five or six in the fall, but I have other responsibilities at the national office in, uh, in British Columbia and Vancouver uh, up at SFU. So uh, we're always coming up with, uh, I work with the leadership team there and we're, you know, planning every year. You know, it's pl- soon as the, soon as September 16th comes along, we'll be planning for next year. So already actually talking about the uh, 40th anniversary in 2020. How much money has the Terry Fox foundation raised for cancer research yeah it's uh it's a a a huge number and i don't like you always like to mention the number terry when he left newfoundland on april 12th 1980 hoped to raise one million dollars and um that goal became a dollar for every canadian and he saw that come true 24 million dollars at the time and uh today 38 years later uh terry'd be somewhere in uh, new brunswick today but he'd be so proud to know that if he was with us, over $750 million has been raised for cancer research because of schools and communities across Canada. It's just an incredible feat. And, uh, you know, we salute you and, and everyone involved in the foundation for, for doing what you do. And again, the website is terryfox.org. You're wearing a really snazzy uh, shirt. Uh, I guess it's one of those fancy running shirts that's made of really nice yeah. that kind of nice material that will hopefully be available soon on your website where you can buy it yeah. there's a spot for online shop I see you've still got the 2017 t-shirt on the website uh, I'll have to talk to somebody <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple of people who would love the, to yeah. have that shirt that you're wearing uh, so before we let you go here 
Any final thoughts that you want to share that we haven't uh, for, that we forgot to ask you about? No, it just uh, it is. It's it's so always so great to be here, and um, every, every time I come, and I'm, I try to get here once a year, and uh, it's clear uh, uh, Winnipegers and uh, Manitobians uh, love Terry and the fact that he's from here, and but. Um, you know, it's so important to do what we can to continue Terry's legacy. As Terry said, we'll all be touched by cancer in one way or another. You know, we might not get it ourselves, but a uh, family member, a friend, somebody we know down the street, and that's why it's so important to continue Terry's legacy. Terry's, um, what Terry's done has made, had such a huge impact on research in this country, and um, there's some great research being done at uh, uh, here in Winnipeg as well as at U of M. So uh, just thank you, and... Uh, uh, hopefully, people get out there at Cinnaboyne Park in uh, in September. Well, thank you for all that you've done for keeping uh, Terry's legacy alive, Fred. And uh, thank you and your family for uh, holding Manitoba still so near and dear to your heart. It means a lot to us, and in turn, that that, that strengthens our connection. So we appreciate you very much. Uh, thank you. Fred Fox, brother of Terry Fox. The run is on Sunday, September 16th. The hashtags Terry Fox Run as well as Be Like Terry and the website terryfox.org. We're going to have some Farnell time in a second with Global National Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell, but it's time, as promised, for our concert announcement. The hints we gave earlier were... Rah, rah. Yes. Mary. Yes. And then you hinted at the time of the year. The time of the year, because this might be the most popular Christmas album by a modern pop act. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yes. For sure. Okay, good. My parents... <laughs> I thought maybe it was on an island oh, there. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> Boney M. Holiday favorites and hits. This is happening Tuesday, December 11th, Club Region Event Center, which, by the way, I just went to it on Saturday for the first time. Great spot. I know. It was a wonderful spot for a concert, so yeah. this will be a great show. There is a pre-sale happening Wednesday via Ticketmaster. The password is Venus. Tickets go on sale proper Friday, June 1st. We're going to talk to Anthony Farnell right now, Global News Chief Meteorologist, about the summer weather forecast. And uh, Anthony, the headline at globalnews.ca reads, A typical Canadian summer with a few exceptions. Are any of those exceptions here in Manitoba? Well, I think actually as far as temperatures go, it will be one of those regular summers where, uh, yes, there'll be some heat, but there'll be some cooler days. When you sum it all up at the end of August, early September, I think uh, overall it'll be close uh, to average. And uh, that's as far as temperatures go. I think when we're talking about rainfall, and this is some good news when we're talking about average rainfall because it's been anything but that for Manitoba so far this spring with just uh, drought conditions across the region. So for firefighters, for farmers, getting a bit more rain it is really uh, just perfect news. Yeah, we have a little bit of rain in the forecast coming into tomorrow and Wednesday, maybe even a little bit as we head into the weekend. And normally that's cause for consternation and frowns. But I think for the most part, Anthony, here on the prairies and in Manitoba in particular, we are welcoming whatever moisture we do get. We're kind of stuck in the middle. I'm thinking a Steelers wheel here. Stuck in the middle with, uh, with to the <laughs> west of us, we've got uh, above normal temperatures forecast for the summer and then also. So uh, basically from the Great Lakes all the way to Newfoundland, Labrador in the same boat, Manitoba just kind of stuck here in the middle of, of normal and average. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and and again, we we in in the winter, uh, average temperatures that would be something to to definitely be concerned about and not ex- excited. But uh, what a lot of Canadians don't realize is average temperatures in the summer. That's that's great news. Having an average summer is, is exactly what you want to see. Now, as far as uh, Eastern Canada and, and BC and Alberta, I am expecting a lot more hot days than cool, and the potential at least for some pretty lengthy heat waves. And of course, that's going to cause a uh, uh, forest fire concerns out west and uh, I'm also concerned about the tropics when it comes to, to eastern Canada the the Atlantic Ocean right off the coast is running way above normal so uh, there is reason for concern on both coasts and I think uh, reason to be happy in the middle where, where Winnipeg and, and Manitoba finds itself. Well what is the cause for concern you mentioned the east coast what's happening in the, the west coast that's making you raise an eyebrow? Well, just the fact that uh, it's it's drying out. We had a really bad flood season in BC. There's been record snowpack late in the season, uh, and that's what's caused uh, places around Kelowna to, to just be inundated with water. All of that runoff is, is now getting into the streams and eventually is going to end up in the Pacific. Uh, but what we're seeing now is a much drier pattern setting up there. So when you get drought followed by what's been a, a wet start to the spring, you have a lot of bush uh, and, and a lot of that will go up in flames when when we do get those dry months uh, that that are expected out west. Spending uh, several years in the Okanagan as I did, I've fallen in love with the place, uh, Anthony, and they had a fire just on in West Kelowna on the west side of uh, Okanagan Lake on Saturday night, right just below the Mission Hill Winery Saturday night. It's an iconic spot, so when you're, and it's essentially a residential neighborhood in and around there, so uh, I think a lot of folks in Kelowna and the Okanagan Valley are going to be on edge. As you mentioned, lots of water to begin the spring and now right away, boom, right into extra dry and extra warm conditions in an area famous for uh, arid conditions to begin with. Yeah, and it's it's really a, a unique climate. If you have been out there, you can get, like they've had this spring, flooding while they're just dealing with sunshine down in the valley. But you always, of course, have to look up into the mountains, and, and that decides uh, how much water is going to be in the streams and rivers. And you can get fire and flood at the same time. So it's been a, a pretty remarkable spring out there, and, and now uh, the temperature is going to start to climb. And uh, I think 30s uh, on a regular basis out west uh, is what... What we're expecting as we get towards July and August. And as far as, as going back to, to Manitoba and Winnipeg in particular, I think June is going to be that back and forth month. And, and I do think if there's going to be more of these heat waves, it, it will be later in the summer. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. We've got about 30 seconds. I just want to ask you quickly, it's not unusual for us to skip from winter basically straight into summer here, but <laughs> we've been experiencing 30-degree heat, thir- plus over 30 degrees for a, quite an extended period of time now. Why has this heat wave been, like, what's driven to this, or what's driven this heat wave that we've been experiencing? Well, a lot of it has to do with the dry spring. When you have very dry ground, all it takes is a sunny day. The sun comes up, it heats that ground very quickly, and you can get 30-degree temperatures awfully quickly. When you have lush vegetation, when it's been a wet spring, the ground is saturated, it takes a lot more of the heat, the sun's energy to warm up the surface of the earth, and so you end up with a cooler spring. So as long as there's not a lot of rain, you're going to have more 30-degree days. Thankfully, we do have some of that moisture coming this week. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, sir. 
All right. Have a great summer, guys. All right. You too. Hopefully that forecast holds true. I'm okay with the, with the average as long as we get some rain. Hey, when you're talking about 25, 26, 27 degrees as an average high temperature through June, July, and most of August, I'll take it as well. I guess Anthony has already declared he's not interested in speaking with us until uh, till the fall. <laughs> have a good summer, boys. Okay, Anthony. <laughs> See you in the fall, brother. Do all their songs start with a flourish of percussion? I believe they do. I don't know. I haven't heard all their songs, but let's just go with yes, a blanket, yes, yes. <laughs> Bodie M coming to Winnipeg in December. And we have tickets. We have one set of tickets. Yep. Julie and Richard are, have stolen the tickets for the rest of the week. Well, that's because we have something else pretty cool to give away Tuesday mm. through Friday, so we'll give you those details. But yeah, Boney M, holiday favorites and hits. We announced this morning, Tuesday, December 11th at Club Regent Event Centre. There is a pre-sale happening Wednesday, May 30th. So this Wednesday, the password via Ticketmaster is Venus. And then the tickets go on sale Friday, June 1st. Now, we gave... The first hint that we gave today was Raw Raw. And Nancy texted us. She immediately knew who it was. The second hint was Mary's... Or no, it was just Mary. All I said was Mary. That's all you said. And then the third hint, which you gave, Greg, was the time of year that they're going to be playing in Winnipeg. Behind the glass, Jerry, we made them name the song, and they also had to say what? They also had to say this. There is boy child, Jesus Christ, was born on Christmas Day. <laughs> Did they have to say just like that? Just with like that. With all the harmonies and Absolutely. everything? Absolutely. I needed at least five people in the background for the harmonies. <laughs> and well, who, you must have limited phone calls then. <laughs> who won? Uh, the winner was Denise uh, Realis. Denise Realis. Yes. Congratulations, Denise. And uh, that is, again, Tuesday, December 11th. And you can win more tickets throughout the week with... Richard and Julie on the news. And speaking of one Julie Buckingham. Hi, Julie. Where are you today? Julie. Oh. Julie. I think we may have lost Julie. Are you there, Julie? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. I, Hi. I, I, uh, I'm not very good with the technical stuff sometimes. Oh, okay. So, yeah. And it, which is, it means it's a very good thing I am not where you are today because I'd be putting a lot of people in danger. I'm not sure that I'll be very good at it either, but it's something that's been on my bucket list to try. And we're at 461 Alfred Street, Habitat for Humanity. This is the women's build. And I'm super excited to be here with Ashley Patry, who is the homeowner. How exciting is this for you, Ashley? Very exciting. Tell us about your family. I have five children, uh, four boys, one girl, and they're very excited to be getting a brand new home and have, you know, more space than ever. Well, I'm going to help you out today, but you have a lot more work to do on this house, don't you? Tell us what you have to do as part of your responsibilities to get this Habitat house. So I have to put in 500 volunteer hours. So I've been doing some at the refit stores, and now is I'm going to be on the build. So anytime there's a chance for me to help build this home, I'm going to be here. It's super special to be able to say, I helped do that, isn't it? Very. And it really shows your kids that good things can happen as well. Yes, it does. If you work hard, you'll, you'll anything can come true. And you know what? All of the Habitat owners, they do have to pay a mortgage. It is uh, geared to income, 
And we're just super thrilled as part of the Chorus family. There's a bunch of us on the site today um, from from our location. Also from television, Eva Kovacs is here. Mike Conkin is here. And it's just going to be a ton of fun. So I'm going to get geared up with my work boots. And I spot a pink hard hat that's got my name on it. And I'm looking forward to it, guys. What uh, what kind of work boots are you wearing there? Julie got all the all the right triangles and all the right designations. You know, I, I I'm really you know, driving here. I was like, I wonder if they have child size steel toe <laughs> boots because I have these like itty bitty little feet. So oh, they do. See, they're giving me the thumbs up. So I thought maybe I'd have to go on a coffee run, but apparently they have child size boots. Are your kids going to work on the build site, Ashley? Uh, maybe the older ones. Maybe yeah. the older ones. So that's pretty <laughs> awesome too. So that's what we're doing today, and there'll be, uh, I'm sure, pictures on social media, and uh, there might be a camera that shows up later. So right I'll on. Have to prove that I'm working at least when that's here. So are you going to be there throughout the day, Julie, or do you have to come back here and do the show with Richard this afternoon? What's the deal? No, this is my. I'm putting my eight hours in here today. Wow! And to what point do you hope to get the house today? Like the exterior framing, or what's what's the plan, Stan? Well, the foundation is in, and uh, the floor is not completely sheeted yet. So uh, maybe the rest of the floor will go in. And I was hoping I was going to like get to like do all the the fun painting and come in like a painting HGTV. But uh, I think that they're a little ways away from that yet. Mm-hmm. But maybe I could make a surprise appearance for well, that as well. Well, Julie, I imagine working with Richard uh, probably make <laughs> you probably have a lot of pent up frustration. You'd probably be good at wielding a hammer today. I might be. I was like going to wonder if this is actually harder than working with Richard or easier. <laughs> so I'll have to let you know at the end of the bill. We have but... a vote. We have a vote, but we won't voice <laughs> it right now. It would have maybe been better for everyone involved if you'd be there on Friday, because then you'd really be swinging that hammer. <laughs> work out that, that frustration. Anyway, all joking aside. No, thanks. I'll do it myself. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Julie, have a great day out there. A perfect day. Don't forget the sunscreen. Keep hydrated. Uh, it gets hotter uh, quicker on those work sites. There's not a lot of shade. So uh, be safe, have fun, and uh, congratulations to uh, the family that's going to be moving into that brand new house. What an extraordinary and a very special occasion you're participating in. Uh, quite jealous of you, in fact. Thanks, guys. I'm super pumped, and there's a lot of girl power here for this women's build. All right, Julie Buckingham, thank you very much. 680 CJOBs, Julie Buckingham, co-host of The News, which is on from 4 until 7. Richard Clute and Julie, although not today with Julie, because she is at this site once again at 461 Alfred. And while she's working on this wonderful effort uh, for to help out the community, I just wanted to very quickly revisit the 32nd annual Teddy Bears picnic because I started to tell a story there, but we ran out of time. I stopped by it yesterday just to say hi. I had never been to the Teddy Bears, P- Bears picnic. Of course, it rained a little bit. I've heard that it would be incomplete without some rain. Daniel Williams says that's that's complete balderdash. Balderdash! Uh, <laughs> you got it into conversation. Good for you. They've only had rain like 20% of the time, but I think in the public perspective, per- perspective and perception is that it always rains and Tanya says no that's not true but anyway I I agree with you it wouldn't be the same without a little bit of rain thankfully it it didn't rain hard when I was there just a little bit of drizzle I brought an umbrella but realized uh, as I was carrying it that it was clearly broken because 
or because <laughs> half of the pegs were sticking out and it wasn't even covering me. So I just folded it up and got a little bit wet. But it went into the, the Rotary Club food tent and who is serving burgers but Wab Canoe, the leader of the NDP in Manitoba. So I introduced myself. I said, hey, Wab, we've spoken on the phone, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never met in person. I'm Brett from CJOB. Please give me a burger. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And he liked my th- my Winnipeg Thunder hat. And uh, then he said, they used to play in the convention center, right? And I said, no, no, these guys were in the arena. You're thinking of the cyclone. Winnipeg cyclone. What do they call that? The wind tunnel? Yeah, the wind tunnel. They had those horrible, horrible uniforms, kind of the green with orange. Oh, I did not like them at all. Green and beige kind of coloring. That's right. Yeah, the, the convention center was an awkward facility and venue as well. But we digress. So, yeah, it was just, it was a wonderful thing to see all the kids out there, all the families, so much stuff to do for the Teddy Bears Picnic, which once again is in support of the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. We've been talking a lot about ticks lately because they're popping up everywhere. People are a little frightened about how many ticks there are, and in particular, they're scared because of Lyme disease. So to tell us about some of the myths and facts about Lyme disease, we're joined by the founder and president of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, Jim Wilson. Jim, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I think one of the biggest things that jumped out at me, you've got a list of myths and then the truths connected to them uh, on your website, is the fact that I think there's a perception that there's a tick, quote-unquote, season, that ticks go away, and that there there's a time of the year when you don't have to worry about them. Not necessarily true. Uh, no, uh, there's definitely peaks and valleys, but there's a threat of uh, ticks in all but the very coldest of times throughout the year. Is it true that Lyme-infected ticks only live in rural Canada? Absolutely not. No, that's that's a myth. Uh, the the ticks are very effectively moved around by um, migratory birds. So anywhere you, for example, anywhere that you get robins landing, you potentially have ticks being dropped off in in your neighborhood. So what are some of the other misconceptions with regards to Lyme disease? I know we've been having conversations all this month about Lyme disease, but also about MS. There are several disorders that share similar symptoms to that of Lyme disease and and that perhaps some folks are getting diagnosed with one when maybe they really have the other. Could you go down that road for us, uh, if you don't mind, Jim? Yes, we found over the last uh, decade or so that uh, many people have been misdiagnosed, given a, given a label of something other than Lyme disease, and that can include multiple sclerosis or Parkinsonism or various forms of arthritis or chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, only to find out later that it was actually Lyme disease and then get treated and, and recover much of their health. You can get more information at Can Lime. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. I, I interrupted you. Please continue. Yeah, I was just going to say, so anybody who has been given one of those uh, labels should really be thoroughly uh, reevaluated for, for uh, tick-borne disease, not just Lyme disease. Um, th- these ticks are carrying uh, many different diseases, and, and I think they've identified um, 
five in the Manitoba area that the ticks are carrying. Uh, and the long-term consequences for many of these uh, are, are quite unclear at the moment. So I think investigating tick-borne diseases has got to be um, a primary focus if somebody is presenting with those that spectrum of symptoms. CanLyme.com is the website. It's the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. The founder and president of that organization is Jim Wilson. He's uh, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Jim, do you have Lyme disease? Uh, yes. I contracted Lyme disease in 1991 in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And do you continue to deal with uh, the the disease today? I'm pretty good. I, I was treated... Uh, it, it wasn't easy and it wasn't quick, but I was treated and, and able to uh, to recover much of my health. I, I have some very minor residual deficits, but other than that, I, I'm fine. Um, but it certainly isn't uh, isn't easy once it's uh, allowed to become a chronic illness. Is there a standard test that that is effective in identifying Lyme disease and and some of these other tick-borne illnesses, Jim? Well, there there are standard tests that are used. The problem is is they do have a, a fairly significant rate of false negative results. So the problem with the, the Lyme disease testing is it cannot rule out Lyme disease. Um, there's just too many strains and, and variants of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Um, and the tests are not capable of testing across the genus uh, Borrelia, which is the, the bacteria uh, Borrelia that causes Lyme disease. So it's it's very much a clinical diagnosis uh, based on the, the presentation and then the likelihood that the, the person could have been exposed. Jim, we only have about 30 seconds, but I've heard some people describe Lyme disease as the disease du jour. How do you react when you hear that? Well, it just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It's it's here. It's here in rapidly increasing numbers, and that's reflected in in just the confirmed numbers across Canada. Um, and it's going up year over year, and it is a serious disease. It can uh, totally disable a person. Uh, it can kill in rare occasions. Um, it's certainly uh, people have lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their marriages. It can be devastating. So when I hear those kinds of uh, statements, it's just uh, it's it's frustrating. Jim Wilson, founder and president of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. The website is canlyme.com. That's C-A-N-L-Y-M-E dot com. An outstanding location for just about any event. And this is the first time this event will actually be taking place at Assiniboine Park. Oh, that's cool. So to tell us about that, we've got Wendy Shetler, who is CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. We have Carrie Pleskatch, who is a walker and team captain. And Allison Woodward, who is an events, who is the events manager with Alzheimer's Society Manitoba. Wendy, let's start with you. Uh, so we mentioned pancake breakfast. What time does the walk start? The walk, actually, you can register at 5.30. A.M.? No, in the evening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the walk itself is at 6.30. So it's uh, so it gives you some time if you're driving to the location. And uh, and it's a fantastic, fantastic fam- family fun event. Why have it on Thursday? 
Instead of the weekend. Well, you know, lots of people are away. And, uh, you know, you look at kind of Winnipeg and Manitoba, we're kind of the province of lakes and beaches and such. And so really the uh, city oftentimes empties when the weather is nice. And so it's uh, kind of Thursday is close enough to the weekend to feel like it's kind of a a night to do something fun. Um, But it doesn't stop you from doing your other weekend activities that you need to do. And you know a thing or two about doing this, right? This is the 26th annual? It is the 26th annual. And I have probably walked... 24 of them. Um, so I have walked many, many, many of these walks, both for professional and personal reasons. So it's uh, it's a pretty amazing thing to see it grow so much over the years. Personal reasons. What uh, what are some of those? Well, when I first started walking, I was walking because my I had two grandparents with dementia. One had, um, had Alzheimer's and one had had um, vascular dementia. And uh, as time went on, my dad was diagnosed with dementia in his mid-60s. And so he has since died. He died last year. Um, But I walked for him too. So, you know, there's very few of us actually who aren't touched in one way or another. Well, and I think that's the message we're trying to get across when it pertains to Alzheimer's, whether you've got a direct connection, a relative or a friend with Alzheimer's. It is uh, the great, you know, this gray wave of... Dementia is about to to strike us in unprecedented numbers, but we're also learning, as Carrie uh, uh, Puskatch knows all too well, that this isn't just elderly people that are getting Alzheimer's, that are developing dementia. There's uh, early onset Alzheimer's now, and, and Carrie, that's something your dad's dealing with. Yeah, he is, yeah. He was diagnosed um, just uh, about two years ago, And it actually progressed really quickly. He's already in a home um, in Selkirk, and he's no longer at home with us. So, And it's really hard to watch to see someone you love decrease so quickly. How old is your dad? He um, just turned, sorry, (laughs) I'm already getting emotional, Um, 60, well, two years ago, sorry, 67. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you walked first last year. Yes. And uh, how many people are on your team? This year, I actually lost count. <laughs> um, uh, we've doubled in size. We're over 20 people already. Wow. Just, yeah, everyone has been so touched. My dad was the one to go out, and he was the party guy and the fun-loving guy. And so it really touched him and all his friends and all of the family. So everybody's coming out to support us and to support him. And it's like, as Wendy said, it's a really fun family event. So all the kids are coming out and it's fun for them. Uh, all you have to do is hear the emotion in Carrie's voice, Wendy, to understand the, the potential ramifications and the and the cascading effects of this, this disease. But with regard to early onset uh, dementia, is this something new or is this just something now that we're hearing more about? I think we're just hearing more about it. You know, people are getting diagnosed. People aren't hiding the way they did before. Um, Physicians know more about how to diagnose it. I mean, even when my dad was diagnosed, he knew he was changing at 62. He retired from his job. He knew he was a step off. He said, he's, I'm just like, I'm just a step off. And um, initially when he tried, he started the diagnosis process. He was about 64, but he couldn't access the typical geriatric kind of assessment units because he wasn't 65. And so that made it more difficult. He ended up seeing a neurologist and there was a long wait for a neurologist. So really, by the time he actually got his diagnosis, he was he was over 65. Um, but the process, and again, the process took a long time. Um, 
but it's and it, it it challenges the whole family. I mean, my I had a teenage brother at home at the time um, when my dad was changing. And, you know, he had uh, a wife who was working full time. And so people's lives are are very different, too. There's different issues when people are younger. Um, and oftentimes people progress more quickly, like Carrie was talking about. My dad didn't so much. He, he, he lived with the illness for about nine years. Um, but many people do progress more quickly. And so there are ramifications around what that means. There are uh, some real financial issues. Um, when somebody's younger and if you're, all, if you're still working. I mean, as it is, my dad had just retired, but he retired because he knew he was, he was changing. And, um, and so there's lots of different impacts. People look at you and you don't, you look so young. My dad was strong. Um, as my dad progressed, he lived well. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make it sound all doom and gloom because, because you're given a diagnosis doesn't mean you roll over and die. People can live for a long time and live well for a long time with dementia. Um, but there comes a time when things are more, much more difficult. And my dad wasn't old and frail. My dad was strong. Um, and when he was frightened and he was trying to, you know, figure out what was going on in his world and protect himself, um, he had a stronger body. And so it made it more difficult all the way through. Uh, so it is important that, that we know that there are people who are younger with dementia. It's important that we know that there are families who are really struggling and need support. Um, and there is special support that they need because of it. This Thursday, May 31st, it is the Alzheimer's Society Winnipeg Walk, starting at Assiniboine Park Lyric Theatre. We have in studio with us Wendy Shetler, who is CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. We have uh, Carrie Pleskatch, who is uh, one of the walkers and a team captain in this event. And we have a third person we haven't heard from yet. Allison Woodward is the events manager for the Alzheimer's Society. And Allison, if someone listening to this right now wants to get involved, how do they go about doing that? For sure. So the main way you can get involved and get more information is to go to our website, so alzheimer.mb.ca. Um, and there's so much information on the Investors Group Walk for Alzheimer's. You can go on, register as an individual, register as a team, uh, find out more details about um, the different routes and what you can do at the walk. We have lots of entertainment. We have food. Uh, we have lots of activities for the kids. Um, yes, so the main way, go to alzheimer.mb.ca. You can always call our office, uh, phone number 204-943-6622. And you can always just show up at the walk on uh, Thursday, May 31st. We're taking registrations right up to the start of the walk. And this raises a tremendous amount of money. Last year, over $300,000, over three hundred ten. Thousand dollars. The goal this year is three hundred thirty thousand dollars. And Carrie, we were discussing off air what this does to your family. It's got so many tentacles as to what it affects. But you mentioned that the Alzheimer's Society is so affected with such a critical piece, uh, such a resource for you as you're going through this. Maybe you could talk about, before we let you go, uh, how helpful they've been and, and on what fronts. Sure. Just um, I'm from Beaujolais, so. Um, when my dad was first, when we first seen signs of potentially something was wrong, um, we contacted the Alzheimer's Society out there and the regional coordinator was like very helpful through this trying time. She sent us in the right direction of what, like how to get dad tested on that stuff. Um, we also attended many 
telehealth sessions, is that what they're called, mm-hmm. um, to get more information. They were put on regularly. My mom has gone to monthly meetings there to get support from other people going through the same things. Um, yeah, so it was without them, I don't know where we'd be today. So it was tremendous help, and this walk is great awareness, and our team, like, just talking about it, so many people are touched by Alzheimer's and, and just saying that we're doing this walk, everyone, oh, my grandpa went through that or my, you know, someone. So it's great awareness. So we're really, this is our way of giving back. And uh, Allison, we only have about a minute left here, but this is the first time that the park, the, the walk is being held at Assiniboine Park. Yeah, Why it's is that? really exciting. Uh, we actually outgrew our last site. So we used to be at the Forks and we outgrew it. So we had to find a new site to hold it. So, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful spot and I think it's a great uh, family-friendly park as well. So we have lots of uh, lots of activities to do and, yeah, really family-friendly. You can bring out your pets, uh, bring out your kids. So, yeah, we're very excited to be at the new location. Yeah, the forecast right now about 21 degrees, so not too hot. It'll be just perfect. Allison Woodward, Events Manager, Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. Carrie Pleskatch, Walker, her dad is afflicted with Alzheimer's, and Wendy Shetler, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. And I love the fact that you've added dementia care and brain health as a little bit of a subtext on your on your title for Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. We'll have to have you back to talk about that another time. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you. There are conversations we have on this radio station that are impactful for numerous reasons, for numerous people. Uh, I was thinking back to our discussion on Tuesday or Wednesday with uh, Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman and the whole idea about uh, young people with anxiety disorders and mental health issues. And uh, this kind of got us talking about the topic we're going to discussed right here, Brett. Yeah, that's right. They were set up, uh, Raymond and his team from Clinic Psychology, at uh, the Teddy Bear's Picnic in the Worry Bear Tent. So you could go into the Dr. Good Bear Clinic, and the Worry Bear Tent was right there. Uh, we've taken pictures of ourselves and posted them on social media with the little worry clouds where kids are, you know, exposed to the idea that it's okay to be worried and it's okay to, to want to talk about it. It's also very helpful for parents, right? Because I think, uh, I know... When I was growing up, if I was worried about something, I would often just be told to just stop being a brat or suck it up, you know, because parents just, it's a lot of the new stuff that we're, we're learning in recent decades. Yeah, for sure. And the language around mental health issues and recognizing them, uh, thankfully, has changed dramatically uh, for sure over the last decade. But I think you're right, uh, more so over the last two decades for sure. And to talk about this and to talk about uh, young people that may be dealing with uh, depression, mental unwellness, we have two guests in the studio joining us. Sophia Ali is Executive Director at the Alno Renewal Centre and Jean McKinnon is Clinical Manager at the Alno Renewal Centre. Uh, we welcome you both to 680 CGOB. I think it's first time for both of you, so it thank is. you for this. Mm-hmm. You. Jean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, well, no, I, maybe this is more f- for Sophia, tell us about All No Renewal Centre and, and what it is. So All No Renewal Centre is a counselling agency under the Catholic Health Corporation of Manitoba. We're located at 228 Hamel in St. Boniface and we've been around since 1979, a legacy of our Oblate sisters. We have some satellite offices as well in Steinbeck and we do some rural work in our communities as well. Jean McKinnon is clinical manager at the All No Renewal Centre and... The headline on this uh, this release that was sent to us 
is a, a question. Depressed, anxious, it may have started in childhood. And the practice that we're talking about here is known as attachment-informed therapy. What is that? Well, um, we've realized for a couple of decades now the importance of attachment. Previous to that, psychologists often looked at the individual. Attachment is about the dyad, the parent-child or the caregiver. Maybe the caregiver was a grandparent or an auntie. So attachment is about the relationship that forms after birth or even during, before birth, but that sense of having someone to go to when you're upset or anxious or distressed. And now we know in this last decade or so that the early attachment forms brain connections so that if there's a healthy early attachment, that connects to the frontal lobe, which causes the the part of the brain that brings calming and focus and planning in times of distress, if there's poor attachment, the child is more likely to develop pathways to the fight-or-flight part of the brain. How do those connections generate? Well, usually with our brain, it's what we use that becomes the places where we tend to use our... If where we use our brains establishes strong connections or pathways. So if an infant isn't forming connections to the frontal lobe they're not going to have access to that calming part of the brain. How do we learn this? This is fascinating. Uh, what sort of research um, brought us to this uh, realization? I guess in the last decade, we've used a lot of, um, we can even use electrodes on the brain, and we can see that when mom, for example, is smiling into the face of newborn baby and baby lights up in response to mom, or not maybe newborn, but two-month-old baby, the same part of baby's brain is lighting up as where mom's brain is lighting up. Sophia Ali, Executive Director of the Alno Renewal Center. And Sophia, how is this different from, and this is going to be, maybe sound too reductive, but you know, a lot of times I think therapy can be boiled down to, you know, oh, blame your parents. Uh, so how is this different from, from that kind of stuff where we go to see therapy and see counseling and uh, we realize that maybe our our issues are related to stuff that our parents maybe did inadvertently or maybe just out of bad parenting. I think the first thing is coming to the realization that there are some attachment uh, issues when you are working with someone and the therapist works with the clients and brings that forward. And then it's about understanding and providing yourself with compassion and even that caregiver with compassion, even if you don't agree with what happened. And then using different therapeutic modes. So there's cognitive behavior therapy. Um, so there's different, a lot of different therapies we can use. We just use the attachment lens when we provide those therapies. So it's kind of three things that jump out at me. You mentioned in the in the uh, in the release that you sent out, even early incidents like when an infant has to spend a lengthy time in hospital after birth without a lot of physical contact. This has been linked to emotional issues uh, in later years. Yes. Of course, we know now in the NICU and in the in the different parts of the hospital that care for uh, infants, something called kangaroo care and skin-to-skin skin contact is critical step in terms of forming those connections with, with mom and dad and baby and something that's promoted. So it's not just a physical thing. There is something else going on that, that mm-hmm. I have to confess I wasn't even really aware of, even though I went through this with my boys in the NICU a, a dozen years ago. So that skin-to-skin 
has also got something going on in terms of uh, brain connectivity and activity. The nice thing is that there's many, many opportunities to form attachments. So if your baby is in NICU for a few weeks, man, you've still got many, many years ahead to form healthy attachments that form the brain connections. So it's not short-term. Attachment is always ongoing, and attachment can be healed. We now know that even an 8-year-old going into a healthy home that maybe has been in dozens of foster homes can form a healthy attachment with a lot of support to that new foster or adoptive parent. It's fascinating. Yeah, so the brain is elastic or plastic, right? Now, Sophia, the uh, All Know Renewal Centre is hosting two uh, mini-conferences this week. Uh, one of them is today, is it not? Yes, it is. Yeah. Tell us about those. So we've partnered with the Attachment and Trauma Treatment Centre for Healing from Ontario. And um, they do a lot of specialty work in around the attachment area. And so we, we were looking at trying to get our staff... Um, allowing our staff to receive more training. And so we invited the community of Winnipeg and our rural communities as well to join us. Today we're looking at spirituality and tomorrow we're looking at spirituality and trauma and tomorrow it's addiction, mental health and trauma for two days. And when are these events, uh, if I want to get more information on these as far as timing and whatnot goes, uh, where can I get that? The information uh, would be provided if you call our office. So 204-987-7090. and we usually have the information on our website, but we have pulled our events off just because it was full. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And so that number again? 204-987-7090. Very good. Um, any final thoughts, Jean, before we uh, say goodbye? Um, it's hard to summarize this entire topic, but it is important to find good people to be close to throughout your life as attachment figures. People who have good attachment or learn to have healthy attachment often have reduced mental health issues. Well, and I guess it can probably also cause, What does it? can it directly contribute to people who have problems, maybe even just being intimate in a relationship? Of course, yes. Okay. So once you discover this at a later age, are there ways to... You know, it, to make up for this and to to bridge that gap, so to speak, in our in our later years. Well, definitely, and and therapy is sometimes a way where the therapist begins by being a, a healthy attachment figure for the individual, the client, and then eventually the individual can heal and ha- and learn how to have healthy attachments. Well, it sounds like we have more conversation to have on this topic. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you for this. Thank you. Sophia Ali is Executive Director of the All Know Renewal Center, uh, which once again is at 228 ML in St. Boniface, and Jean McKinnon is Clinical Manager at the All Know Renewal Center. Once again, a couple of mini-conferences happening this week. Uh, The first one is Spirituality, Compassion, and Trauma-Informed Care. That's today. And then Intersections, the Interplay Between Addiction, Mental Health, and Trauma. That's tomorrow and Wednesday. I'm Brett, he's Greg, Behind the Glass Jerry, and Tristan Field-Jones in for Chanelie today on 680 CJOB. And